Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker on KMOX. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts, michaelsflooringoutlet.com. Welcome back to Overnight America. One of the notable presidents of the United States recently speaking is George H.W. Bush, of course. We can go back and look at his time with Ronald Reagan, then after his own administration leading into the 90s. And there's a new book that's coming out in just a few weeks on November 17th. It's called Texas Titans, George H.W. Bush and James A. Baker III, A Friendship Forged in Power. And the author of that book, Charles Denyer, joins us now. Thank you for coming on to KMOX. Great to be here. You know, I want to talk about that. So the Texas Titans, you had George and James. What really made their friendship uh, significant? Well, I think they both recognized early on in their political uh, relationship that they were better together than they were apart. Uh, If you look at uh, the 60-year friendship that they had, they both rose to the top of the political spectrum uh, by really leveraging each other's uh, talents and abilities, which ironically is interesting because um, they met each other on the tennis courts of the Houston Country Club as doubles partners. They both had weaknesses, <laughs> but they also both had strengths. So that spilled That's, over to the political arena. Isn't that basically an analogy they would use in a movie? Like they, That's something they would use as a plot point to try to draw comparisons between the two. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, there's probably a lot of moments in George H.W. Bush's life that would almost seem like it was scripted for a movie. He he led a pretty remarkable life. He did. Yeah. So in Texas Titans, uh, you you talk about uh, friendship forged in power. So you you look at the origin. You talk about how they met. What were some of those things that they they had that really they helped build off of each other's friendship? I think one of the most important things is they understood each other's place in the relationship. Uh, Bush was going to be the consummate politician, meaning running for office on any number of different levels. Baker was going to be more of the behind the scenes strategist architect who would help put his best friend in the, in the best position to either win that race or do what he can to be on the ticket, such as the case with Ronald Reagan. So they really were a heck of a one-two punch. Right. And when you say behind the scenes, what were some of the things that James Baker was actually doing for his uh, political friend? Baker was the, was the, the consummate strategist, um, always working uh, to leverage as best as, he, as best he could his skills 
to put George Herbert Walker Bush in the best position possible. One of those would have been in 1980 when he told Bush, hey, it's time to drop out of the, of the Republican primary. Reagan has this thing buttoned up. You're hurting your chances for the vice presidential nomination. Bush didn't want to hear it. Baker actually went ahead and told the media, Bush is dropping out. Bush was furious, but he ultimately did agree it was the right decision that uh, Baker made. Yeah, that's a risky roll of the dice. You must be really leaning on having some trust in a situation like that. Exactly. Now, James Baker, yeah, I mean, he worked with other administrations. He wasn't just primarily known as someone that worked with George H.W. Bush even before he became vice president. And, you know, George H.W. Bush, of course, had other roles in government at that time. But there's other administrations he served under. That's correct. And in fact, uh, Tom, make, Tom Brokaw makes a statement where he says something effective. A young Houston warrior arrives in Washington in 1975, and D.C. is never the same again. He's really one of the most consequential and most important figures of the last half century in American politics and on the world scene. He was the delegate hunter for President Ford. He then ran the chair. He ran the campaign for President Ford's failed reelection bid, though, but they did a heck of a job. He then transi- transitioned to chief of staff for President Reagan, then became uh, Treasury Secretary for President Reagan. And then by the time um, he's running George Bush's campaign for 1988 against Dukakis, he is you know, handpicked by Bush to be a Secretary of State. Yeah. So his time in politics, James Baker, pretty much ended the same time as the George H.W. Bush presidencies. After that, he didn't really stay in politics. I think it ended on paper, meaning that they were, they were both um, out of power on January 20th, 1993, after Bill Clinton was sworn in. But behind the scenes, Baker uh, kept very active. Let's not forget the 37-day Florida recount between Bush and Gore. If it were not for Baker's sterling uh, efforts there, there would not be a President George W. Bush. So he pulled off an absolute uh, masterful strategy uh, in uh, ultimately securing the 25 electoral votes for Bush in 2000 and, in fact, giving Bush the presidency. So do you think James Baker did that because of the relationship with H.W. Uh, Bush, or do you think Baker would have done it just for the sake of you know, the Republican Party? I think two reasons. Number one, he did it for his best friend, but also for number two, um, he did it uh, in the fact that he once told me, hey, where else are you going to find another guy who has run five successive presidential campaigns from 1976 to 1992, was White House Chief of Staff, Secretary of the Treasury, and Secretary of the State. And here's another reason he did it, too, um, which a lot of people don't talk about. They lost in 1992 to Bill Clinton. The Clinton-Gore ticket put them out of office. So Baker had a chance to give it back to Gore in 2000, and that's what he did. <laughs> I like that, actually. that Again, all of these moments that set up almost a movie. It's like a plot line you couldn't script even if you wanted to, coming back to Absolutely. that starting. Um, and, and that's got to be a part in history. They were very successful. They're running up for re-election. You're the incumbent, so you have the advantage in a situation like that. George H.W. Bush comes up. All of a sudden, Ross Perot comes onto the scene. That kind of throws a monkey wrench into things. And then Bill Clinton... Another thing, uh, you you got a politician like Bill Clinton, who is just a very uh, talented in the sense of public speaking and grabbing people's attentions, and he certainly did all of those things. It was kind of a perfect storm to put up a, a big campaign against the incumbent president of the United States at that time. So when, when you get to that point, 
and Bill Clinton ends up winning that election in 1992. From what I understand, and you, you talk about this in your book, it wasn't all sour grapes after that point. I mean, there was even a point where Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush and James Baker, in that sense, they made good and were friendly to each other. They were. They, it, it, it was tough, though. The loss was devastating for President Bush. I did not understand how they could vote a man in who had, uh, was a draft dodger, who was in England uh, protesting against the Vietnam War. But over time, uh, the wounds were healed, and they became genuine friends. Uh, so much so that Barbara once, Bush once said, I do love Bill Clinton. I mean, I always love his politics, but I do love him as a person. They were very, very close. Uh, for many years, probably starting around 2001, uh, after George W. Bush was sworn in, they had a really healthy president, uh, really healthy relationship, and it was real. Um, George Bush's chief of staff, when he was out of office, Gene Becker, who I know quite well, told me it was a real relationship. It wasn't something in, for the media or fluff. They were really good friends. Yeah, and there's that very famous photo where there's the two statues, George H.W. and George W. Bush, and there's Bill Clinton in between, and he says, hiding between the bushes, or something like that. And it yes, was a funny yes. thing, and Bill Clinton, it was very good. And to, I thought about moments like that, and I thought, man, you don't see that in politics much anymore. It seems everything's so tainted, and I, I don't know if we'll go back to a time where you'll ever see these type of relationships, because the only time you'll see it it is looked at as a weakness and it looks because people hide these sort of things. They don't want to be looked at as someone that's friendly to their competition anymore. Everything's just so difficult to, um, to even mention who you're supporting anymore. Little, little alone in well, politics. If you show yourself voting for the opposite side or something like that. No, it's true. It's very partisan today. Uh, the left has become left or the right has become rider and the center has slipped down. You have to remember 1992 is a very, very contentious political, uh, uh, election. You know, 12 years of Republican rule were out. The 24-7 cable news wire started with CNN. It was a, really a shifting of power in Washington. Um, one of the more contentious elections of the last 40 or 50 years, to be honest with you. And mm -hmm. they were able to eventually put that aside, their differences. Um, and move on. But quite honestly, their differences in political were not that much. Bill Clinton was a center, almost a center-right politician. Um, in terms of um, the way he governed. He'd be definitely considered a Republican to the, by today's standards. <laughs> Do you mind holding on after the break? We can keep talking about your book. Absolutely. The, the book is going to be out in a few weeks. I think the release date's November 17th. So Texas Titans, George H.W. Bush and James A. Baker III, A Friendship Forged in Power, in author Charles Denyer. We'll continue with him next on Overnight America KMOX. Listening to KMOX has never been easier. Siri, play KMOX. And we're here live tonight on Overnight America, enjoying every moment we have with... Our guest, Charles Denyer, he wrote a book called Texas Titans, George H.W. Bush and James A. Baker III, A Friendship Forged in Power, which is out in a few weeks, November 17th. And if people wanted to pre-order or find the book, is there a good place for them to go? Amazon.com. Isn't that easy? <laughs> it's like, it is. <laughs> you know, you get it right to your door. So that's one of those places. Where, where else do you go to buy a book today, you know? I know we, we do have some pretty good local bookstores, but, you know, it's pretty convenient in that sense. Um, I, I wanted to talk to you over the last couple of years. We not only lost Barbara Bush, but also 
uh, George H.W. Bush. And with him, people were curious to hear about his final moments. And right there was James Baker. That's the type of friendship they had all those years. He was one of the people that were right there by his side throughout all of uh, all of his life. Absolutely. Um, through yeah. good times and bad. And um, Bush was also there for Baker when his first wife passed away. But at the very end, uh, Secretary Baker showed up at President Bush's house. And the president said to him, Bake, where are we going today? He said, Hefe, we're going to heaven. He said, good, that's where I want to go. And he was oh. with him when he passed. And the last person he spoke to was obviously President George W. Bush, who called from Dallas and said, Dad, I love you. I'll see you on the other side. Oh. When you hear those stories, and I remember when Barbara Bush passed away and they had the funeral, and George H.W., uh, starts breaking down, and I couldn't help but start crying at a moment like that. You saw all of those things. But one of the things I remember after George's passing is that he had some wishes that he wanted to bring at least some unity back into what we saw a very uh, turbulent time when it comes to politics. So unlike um, John McCain, for example, who requested that Donald Trump not appear, he actually, from what I understand, George H.W. Bush wanted President Trump and Obama and everyone else to be there in order to show some unity. Is that something, uh, is that how you remember it? Of course, yeah, and that's how Bush, and that's how, uh, Bush was. He was a, a uniter, not a divider. He actually sent uh, President Bush a very, comp- President Trump, a very complimentary note on Inauguration Day because he could not make it due to his health. Uh, but it was a very, uh, it was a very, I think, uh, a nice message that you would, uh, one president would send to the next. But that was George Bush, always rising about the fray. Yeah, and that's interesting about him. And James Baker, when you look at him, I, I think you mentioned he was one of those people that I think they you just don't understand how influential and how big he was behind the scenes with so many different uh, campaigns and people in politics. I had no idea about the uh, 2001 election in Florida. I had no idea that he helped and contributed in something like that. And from what I understand, James Baker is still alive. Yes, I was with him last week. He's 90 years old, about to be 91. Still puts on a suit and tie and goes to work every day. Um, I literally would would... If you did not know who he was, you think somebody who's seventy years old. Wow, um, isn't that something? That what, did a help. It, it, it's amazing. What kind of stories does he tell? No, oh, well, uh, all types of uh, funny stories, all types of interesting, interesting stories. I've got a pretty strong political circle uh, with a number of you know top politicians in the last fifty years. So when we're sitting with Baker, uh, we decided, hey, let's give Cheney a call. So we called Cheney. We spoke to Cheney for a while, um, and we decided, hey, maybe we should give Panetta a call. Um, so we we're just, you know, reaching out to people, um, but that's his reach. But I think presidents come and go. Uh, a lot of elected politicians do come and go, uh, and some of them stay in positions in just one position, and that's it. They're a senator, they're a congressman, they're the president for four years or eight years, and that's it. The James Baker, along with one other individual, in my opinion, and I've been in this, this world for a long time in terms of politics at the grand old age of 49. James Baker and Dick Cheney are two of the most powerful, impactful, and consequential statesmen uh, of the last 50 years in the world. Their reach uh, is simply unprecedented from the positions they've held uh, to the influence they've had in Washington, D.C. over a, a 50-year uh, relationship. Now, we talk a lot about Bush and Baker. They were the best of friends, but a lot of people don't know Dick Cheney and James Baker are very close also. And I say that because when you look at the 
men of power, men of persuasion. Uh, Cheney's one of them. I'm also Dick Cheney's personal biographer, um, so I'll put that out. Mm-hmm. I wonder in politics uh, if if you see this sort of relationship. Do people that rise to the level of presidency or even you know vice presidents or whatever it may be, you're a high level cabinet member. Do they normally have a friendship of a, a partnership with someone that helped them get there, or is this a pretty rare type of thing you saw between just two people, two pretty extraordinary two people? I've seen three three clear cut examples of it: Bush and Baker. Number one, number two, Rumsfeld and Cheney, and number three, Bill and Hillary Clinton. Um, Rumsfeld and Cheney, political ideologues. They'll take your knees out from under you if you cross them. Uh, you know, Bill and Hillary Clinton. We've seen their relationship, um, but one that's based on, on a true, enduring, and lasting personal bond. Uh, Bush and Baker. That's it's probably the rarest, and we'll probably never see anything like this again. I, you know, they're from Houston, and Texas kind of has they this are. reputation of, you know, it's, hey, Texas is its own thing. It's like its own country in a way. It has its own culture, its own history. They take a lot of pride in that sort of thing. Is, is this type of relationship, these two titans that they're both from Texas, does that um, does that help fuel it even more? Does that make it even stronger? I think it does, but let me add to that. It's even more than Texas. Obviously, you can't have Houston without Texas. You can't have Texas without Houston, as people like to say. But this is more of a Houston thing. I almost called the book um, Houston Heavyweights, but I decided to broaden my reach and call it Texas Titans because, again, you can't have Houston without Texas. Um, But these are two Houstonians. Uh, Houstonians are very proud to call them theirs. Um, Houston has very much embraced both of these men. Uh, Baker is a multi-generational Houstonian. Bush uh, landed in Houston in 1959 and, in effect, never really left. This is an adopted hometown, and the people of Houston simply love George Bush. Mm-hmm. You said uh, James Baker still works, so what, what is he doing at 91 years old? Well, when you've held all the titles that James Baker has held in the political world, you can really do whatever you want. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> He keeps busy. Um Speeches. He keeps busy doing the things that make uh, James Baker who he is. And I think when people, you know, my reading on him, people that are so successful and continue to move forward and are healthy at that age, they just don't look back. They're always moving towards the future. You know, when I saw him last week and he's got a freshly pressed suit on, uh, tie, manicured well, everything, he looks like he's going to work for a 50-hour-a-week work. That's just him. He just continues to move forward. Most people at 91 aren't even alive. The baker is uh, running and gunning still. I think that's just great. So the book comes out November 17th, so just a few weeks away. You can pre-order on Amazon. Texas Titans, George H.W. Bush, and James A. Baker the Third: A Friendship Forged in Power, in author Charles Denyer. And if people wanted to look you up and maybe some of your other works and things, do you have a website or someplace they can go? I do. CharlesDenyer.com. Makes it pretty easy. Does uh, James Baker have a favorite joke? I, I, I guess that a lot of Texans, they got like a go-to line to start a conversation. You know, there is. he, he does like to tell some funny jokes, I would say that, and he always warms them up. So I would think <laughs> one of the funniest he told me was uh, a time he, um, he was with Gorbachev, and uh, he'd given Gorbachev something, and he said, you know, Mr. President, which at that time Gorbachev is now the president of the Soviet Union, you need to give that back to me. He said that Gorbachev had a knack for, um, let's just say, uh, taking things and not giving them back. And uh, 
he said he kind of called Gorbachev out. Gorbachev turned a little red in the face, knowing he'd been uh, kind of caught red-handed by the Secretary of State. But it was all fun and games. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I like yeah, yeah, like the former premier of the Soviet Union to give something back. You've got to have a little bit of a backbone there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, James Baker. There was a story about that, too, when it comes to the Soviet Union with Putin recently. And I can't remember who it was. I think it was Belichick said they asked to see his Super Bowl ring and he never got it back or something along those lines. So that's still <laughs> happening today. Um, James yeah, Baker. Um, I, I love learning about him. And what's even more interesting is the the partnership, the friendship that was there between him and George H.W. Bush, documented in the book Texas Titans, which you can pre-order now, comes out November 17th. Charles Denyer, thank you so much for coming on and talking about it on KMOX. Had a great time. Thank you so much. And he joins us on the Quiver River Electric Guest Line. This is Overnight America KMOX. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. News Radio 1120, KMOX, the voice of the Cardinals. And joining us now from Harris Dahl Fisher and Young, friend of the show, and whenever there's something going on with the Supreme Court, I like to get his take on it. Brad Young, thanks for coming on to Overnight America. My pleasure, Ryan. And hey, before we uh, get started talking about legal issues, I do want to just offer my condolences to the Brown family. Uh, Ed Brown passed away yesterday. Brown and Brown are a big law firm here in town. They advertise a lot. Everybody's heard of them. And uh, Ed was the guy with the eye patch, and he was known for that. And uh, he passed away yesterday. And certainly, uh, my uh, thoughts and prayers go out to the Brown family and that entire law firm. Mm, a lot of love for them right now. Absolutely. So um, yesterday, the Supreme Court had a very busy day in a couple of senses. You had Amy Coney Barrett getting the votes and then getting sworn in, and then I guess officially sworn in after that. So I guess apparently Clarence Thomas, when he did that, it was more ceremonial, but the Chief Justice had to be the one to actually swear in the next court justice. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. The first one was ceremonial. The second one is official. Uh, that's why the second one is behind closed doors. It's not publicized, although there there will be an official photographer there and we'll eventually see photographs, but it's not broadcasted live like the one with Clarence Thomas was. Mm-hmm. If I remember correctly, didn't that happen to President Obama, too? They messed up the oath of office and they had to like do a private <laughs> one behind the scenes. Yeah, they, they had to redo it because they skipped part of the oath. And then there was a the question, if the oath was skipped, is it really a valid swear again? So they had to kind of take a mulligan and do it again. Uh-huh. So technically speaking, was there a, a, a period of time, a layover period of time, where who would have been the Speaker of the House? Paul Ryan was officially president? You know, in a technical sense, I think you're right. And in fact, that might be, listen, that might be the plot of a great thriller novel where someone messes up the oath, someone else becomes president, declares war on Iberia or something, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, and then the thriller novel ensues. So you've stumbled into something there, Ryan. I love it. Or they, they do something and it goes to the Supreme Court and they have to determine if that who's the action. president yeah <laughs> well the the interesting thing was last night too that the supreme court justices the sitting ones before 
the official swearing in of ACB, is that they made a decision on ballots in Wisconsin and what's valid, what's not valid. There were some disagreements there. And then all of a sudden, Brett Kavanaugh was trending on social media. A lot of people, uh, at least on that side, were talking about his uh, dissertation, his decision in that sense. They were not happy with his uh, conclusions. They called it dangerous, and they said it was almost like it was uh, written by uh, a child, I guess, if he didn't understand what it was going on. So I was wondering if you had a chance to read it and what your thoughts were overall on that decision. I did. I have the 35-page decision from the Supreme Court. I read it today, and I really don't understand why it's controversial. Uh, I've seen lots of stories today in the mainstream media about this this decision and Kavanaugh's uh, audacious footnote uh, on page 14 of the opinion. And it's really just a footnote, but it doesn't say anything more shocking uh, than state courts are not allowed to rewrite or depart from the state election code enacted by the legislature. In other words, courts aren't supposed to rewrite the laws. Huh. And, and I don't understand why that's a shocking revelation that courts are not supposed to rewrite the laws. And that's what Kavanaugh states in his footnote, uh-huh. uh, because that's what the state court in Wisconsin was attempting to do. Oh, I see. Well, if that's something that they're looking at this close to an election, people are very upset because they they look at that, and this is their analysis. Now, everyone has an opinion in their own analysis on things, and they, and they say things like, this could be shocking because that means that any uh, vote that comes in after Election Day will automatically could be disqualified, and this is a look at what the Supreme Court's going to do to your voting rights, and you're going to get disenfranchised and things like that. So is there any concern outside of Wisconsin and their local laws that that we should be worried about? Not not really, because let's look at this Wisconsin case for just a second, Ryan. In the Wisconsin statute that was under fire by the Democrat National Convention, the statute states that all mail-in ballots must be uh, received by Election Day. That's what the law states. The legislature passed it into law. The governor signed it. That's what it states. But to the DNC, they didn't want that. They wanted because of the pandemic rules, to be able to go beyond Election Day as long as it's postmarked by Election Day. Well, that that isn't what the statute states. And so the DNC was asking the state court to rewrite the law just because that's what the DNC wanted. And, you know, there's a fundamental concept here under, under the separation of powers that courts don't rewrite laws. They can state a law is either enforceable or not enforceable. It's constitutional or not constitutional, but they cannot say, hey, um, you know, Wisconsin legislature, we don't really like how you did that. So we want you to rewrite that law. I mean, that's the definition of judicial activism. And so that's all that Kavanaugh said in his footnote is that the state courts should not be allowed to depart from the state election code enacted by the legislature. Hmm. How is that even shocking? (laughs) I don't know. <laughs> well, I think that some people, they are looking for every excuse they can to be taking things out of context. You know, if I'm Amy Coney Barrett, I'm probably thinking to myself, hey, thanks, Brett. You took a little heat off of me for a moment or two. That was nice of you to do that. <laughs> but also, like in, in other states, I think even here in Missouri, they encourage you to mail in, what, two weeks out of the election just to make sure there's sure. no problems getting your ballot in. And they do that for a very specific reason. They want to make sure it gets there on time, and that's a big part of it. You know, we have other restrictions in every other state. They do it differently, and that's the thing. It, the states, a lot of times— um, 
they have their own ways and reasons for doing it the way they do it. And that should be uh, kept in mind that when you have these votes state by state, that's what needs to be done. You know, each state's represented differently. And, and what I think a lot of times, and this is kind of going off on a tangent, but you see this whole idea of them trying to just tee up the argument on election night when it comes to the, you know, we're going to take the overall vote of America as opposed to the Electoral College. We just want a general vote. And look at Wisconsin as an example. You know, if it wasn't for, you know, the individual states, then th- th- things wouldn't be screwed up the way they are. And I think that's what they do. They, they take it so close to an election and then they try to use this as like a stepping stone to push whatever they want to push next. Well, that's true. And, and there, there's two elements to this, Ryan. First, if you look at even the, under the U.S. Constitution, under Article 2, talking about elections, Article 2 states, and I'm quoting, the clearly expressed intent of the legislature must prevail, unquote. And so really, when, in Kavanaugh's opinion, he simply states, that's what the Constitution says, and we have to uphold the intent of the state legislators. Secondly, the, the thing I think that really is a is a, a, a bee in the bonnet of the folks who are upset about this decision is because Kavanaugh had the audacity to quote Bush versus Gore. And if you go back to Bush versus Gore in 2000, it really wasn't as complicated as people make it out to be. Uh, the state law specified that there should be two recounts. Those two recounts were done. And then, the, of course, we wanted a third recount, a fourth recount. In other words, let's keep counting the votes until we get the outcome we want. And the Supreme Court said, no, we're going to give meaning to what the legislature said. And if there's two recounts, that's what we're going to have. And that just uh, uh, really irked mostly liberals in this country because they wanted to keep counting the votes until they got the result they wanted. And that's what's going on here. Mm. Well, I don't know if there's any other Supreme Court battles that they're mulling over right now. Any that you can think of? Well, the biggest issue coming up uh, very quickly is going to be uh, the Obamacare case, which is going to be on November 10. That's uh, that oral argument takes place. That probably will be the first oral argument that Amy Coney Barrett, uh, Justice Barrett, gets to take part in. Uh, but we're also going to be dealing uh, with issues regarding uh, whether. Uh, gay couples can be prohibited, or rather, whether Christians or Catholic organizations can ban gay couples from adopting children. That's up on the docket. Uh, there's inevitably, and when I say inevitably, that's exactly what I mean. There's going to be litigation from next week's election, the coming election, and uh, uh, and that will eventually make its way to the Supreme Court. So, uh, listen, pop your popcorn, pull up in a comfy chair. Buckle up because it's going to be entertaining. <laughs> Maybe one more time, if, if you can help me when it comes to this election, trying to figure out the procedure of what would have to happen. So obviously there's going to be at least some disputes. Um, it could be on a state level, and who knows? It could be even uh, could be multiple states. Could be I don't even know if it's a federal level. But what would hap- What what's the like the course of action that would be enacted that would push something election related up into the Supreme Court? Well, election laws are governed by state legislatures. So it ha- they have to work their way through a state legislature first, or I mean, rather through a state court system first. So let's use Missouri. If there's some outcome in Missouri that's in dispute, if it involves the federal election part, it would have to work its way up to the Missouri Supreme Court, and then it would go to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, if the issue is strictly a state election issue, like for example, in Parson versus Galloway, 
then that should not make it to the federal courts at all, because that would be an inherent state issue. So if something is challenged, one of the, uh, I guess, who would be the one to challenge it? Would it be like um, someone local in a state or would it be one of the candidates that would challenge it? How would it actually trigger something in a state? Well, the most likely scenario is someone who tries to vote or a group of people are in line to vote uh, and they're denied the right to vote for whatever reason. There could be a hundred different reasons. Or if these ballots, like we saw in Wisconsin, if ballots are received on November the 4th and the a state says we're not going to count those votes because they were arrived late, then that will trigger legal challenges. All of those will have to work their way through the state courts of whatever state that may be in. And then once those state courts issue a decision, then they could be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm. You see, Amy Coney Barrett won't even have her new chair delivered in time before she has to uh, hear these <laughs> arguments. That will be the next thing that well, goes on. <laughs> yeah, and I just hope she gets her clerks hired because uh, you want to talk about some busy folks. Uh, the Supreme Court clerks are going to be very busy researching and writing and preparing the uh, potential decisions for these justices. So uh, hopefully she's bringing her clerks with her uh, from the Seventh Circuit. Yeah, you know, they, they had law and uh, all kinds of different television and movie shows like West Wing was extremely popular there for a while. Have there ever been any TV shows that surround the Supreme Court and their justices? Uh, none come to mind. Um, I typically don't watch those shows because I get caught up in how they're incorrect and wrong, and then it, <laughs> it makes it hard to enjoy the show. So uh, I don't really watch them, although I was a big fan of West Wing. I think I watched uh, th that entire series at least twice, if not three times. Big fan. Oh, wow. Yes, I've only seen a few select episodes. I never got into that one, but maybe one day I'll have to uh, binge watch the series, because there's about five million episodes of that, if I remember right. Uh, yeah, there's a lot. That That's what I would do. That's what I used to do on the treadmill. So it was really good to watch that while I'm on the tre treadmill. Yeah. Uh, Brad Young from Harris Dow Fisher and Young. Hey, thank you for coming on, talking some Brett Kavanaugh with us tonight. My pleasure. And he joins us on the Quiver River Electric guest line on Overnight America KMOX. This is Overnight America, sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. MichaelsFlooringOutlet.com on KMOX. Oh, here it is. We played this last hour with our interview on the Hill, talking to Lynn Marie Alexander. I didn't know that this song, Gloria, was originally recorded by an Italian artist, Umberto Tozzi. I kind of want to hear it because we only played just a clip of it before. Here, turn that up. Let's take a listen. I just love it. Keep it up. Keep it up. I got to hear it.
this is my new jam. We need to make this the intro of the radio show. Umberto Tozzi. I got to tell you, I could listen to this song so many times that I would be fluent in Italian, at least when it comes to the words of Gloria. So this was released in 79, and Laura Branigan came out with the cover in 82. Oh, we got to hear a little bit more. Bring it right back up. A little bit more. I'll tell you the question that producer Mike has now placed in front of me. Do we replace Friday, the Rebecca Black song that we play Thursday night leading into Friday, with the Italian version of Gloria, the original Umberto Tozzi version of Gloria? Do we need to listen to it long enough to memorize all the words? I don't know. Do I need to make that into a Facebook question? Do we replace our traditional Thursday song with it? There's, oh, put it back up. I need a little bit more to make a decision. Yes, yes, I love it. This is what I would like to do. I like to hop into my car, just cruise down the streets of the hill, blasting this song, and anyone that looks at me, wave to them as if I belong in the hill. And they would, I think, reciprocate reciprocate and also enjoy the song with me. So this came out in 79. See, this is a little bit of trivia. I had no idea. I had no idea that this song was an Italian original and that Laura Brandon again uh, covered it in 1982. And then all of a sudden, fast forward many years later, and then here we are, St. Louis Blues adopted for their own. Another hour of Overnight America coming up next on KMOX. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.